Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Hayden Brown. Hayden is CEO of Upwork, a $6 billion market cap workplace company. Um, Hayden, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you so much for having me, Orin. I'm here. so excited that you're here. Now, I'm a, a big fan of your product, SafeGraph, where I work as a customer. We've hired hundreds of freelancers on Upwork. Hiring an Upworker you know, is, is a lot lower friction than hiring like a full-time person, but it's not yet like as frictionless as like an API called like Stripe or something. Now, is, is part of your job to figure out how to make it as little friction as possible, or is like is there is having some friction actually a feature and not a bug? Yeah, it's an awesome question. So you know, as we've grown the product over time, we've actually looked hard at where does friction make sense and where doesn't it make sense. And if you think about our strategy, which is to be the work marketplace for the world, um, there are places in the product where we actually do very intentionally have kind of higher friction experiences as you think about them. Um, where we need to collect a lot of information from users potentially, such as think about um, onboarding a new freelancer into the system, as an example. Historically, um, that has been a somewhat higher friction experience where a new freelancer comes in, we need to get a lot of information about their skills, their expertise, because the more information we have about them, the better we can do at matching them with exactly the right opportunity in our work marketplace. Now, over time, we've also added a lot of integrations and ways that they can for example, upload a PDF of their LinkedIn profile or um, a Behance link or like other things from maybe places that they have that information already stored elsewhere to reduce the friction. But at the end of the day, if they create like a blank profile, that's not going to do anyone any good in terms of us being able to match them. If I'm a, like a company and I'm trying to let's hire like the fifth freelancer to do the same kind of task or something like that, like there is... I've seen even over the years where it's becoming easier and easier on Upwork to do that. Is there some sort of sense where like the goal is to be able to get you to hire someone in X number of seconds or X number of minutes or something? Totally, or do you like reuse that? your previous job post or yep. you know, do the same thing again. And you can imagine at the other end of the spectrum, we have um, experiences like we just launched this thing called Project Catalog, which is like a one-click hiring experience for the client where they can just browse a catalog of projects that freelancers have created, have priced, have basically packaged as like a one-click purchase. Oh, so it could be like uh, SEO optimization and we'll, I'll do these things for you for $300 or, or something like, is that, is that what you're talking about? Totally. It could be, you know, I'll do a book illustration for you for 500 bucks, or I'll do, um, you know, an animation for you for 50 bucks, you know, whatever it is. And that is super low friction. It's like a one-click checkout type of experience. Going to the the full extreme of your Stripe API type thing, you can imagine in the future places where we could integrate talent into experiences like a Google Doc or a Google Spreadsheet or uh, Microsoft 365 um, spreadsheet or something like that. And literally you could say, hey, I need help with this formula. Can I get a, a freelancer to do that? And theoretically, you know, if we did a partnership around that, you could potentially pop somebody into that experience who's pre-qualified, ready to go, ready to help you. And it could be absolutely frictionless. So you know, the, the, the roadmap is very long in terms of the types of things you might imagine us doing, you know, not just today, but also tomorrow to make these experiences 
completely frictionless, um, you know, as the future of work keeps uh, extending out ahead of us. Now, there are certain parts of the organization where like, let's say engineering or marketing, they're really used to hiring these freelancers. There's other parts of the organization, maybe not so used to it. Like, how do you, how do you think about that? Is it, is it, is it part of your job to like do education to different parts of the org or how do you, how do you think and how is that evolving over time? Yeah. I mean, I think over the last year we saw that companies first of all, got so much more comfortable with remote work. And for us, given that we operate basically a global platform for contacting and working with freelancers remotely, the fact that basically every company in the world suddenly got comfortable with remote work meant that overnight, you know, lots of people suddenly realized, wait a minute, I can, you know, work with remote talent. And that's huge. Historically, what we have seen is folks in teams like marketing, um, web development and um, mobile development, you know, they are very accustomed to working with vendors, with um, team members who might not be in the same office, whether it's because the, the company is, you know, geo-distributed or whatever else. And so they very readily kind of adopted remote talent, such as remote freelancers into their teams. And that's a, a great place for us to start. We have over 10,000 skills represented on our platform, and that includes technical skills, um, design and marketing type skills and, uh, you know, customer support skills. And then like this huge long tail of like everything else that can be done in front of a computer essentially. So, um, certainly marketing folks, um, technical folks, they're a great place to start. They're very comfortable quite often with, you know, working with remote talent, but clearly Oren, the, the world has changed so much in the last year. And now I think business, you know, people everywhere have gotten comfortable with working with remote talent and suddenly are realizing, wait a minute, why have I been limiting myself to the talent, you know, in my office, in my local geo? Why am I not thinking about, you know, people that are further afield? I mean, if you think of like the leverage stack, like to me, there's like, you start with uh, maybe some no code tools to get yourself some leverage. Then you maybe move to um, APIs to get your leverage. Um, if they're, If you need something a little bit more complex, then maybe you move to like freelancers um, um, to, or maybe even before that, maybe it's like a middleware solution, like a Zapier or something. Then you move to freelancers. And then the last step would be um, to move to other employees to get yourself leveraged. Like, is that, is, do you think about it similar or do you actually, we should put things like, we should change the way that is in that, in that kind of like staircase or? I mean, what we see the smartest companies doing is forcing their teams to think, Upwork first, frankly, and they give their teams a budget um, and say, look, do whatever you can first and foremost on Upwork, because the beauty of the model is it's completely agile. It's completely flexible. You know, you can kind of turn on and off the resourcing depending on the business need. You're not kind of pre-committed to any long-term contract or anything that's kind of difficult to unwind. And um, that's what kind of the, the smartest companies have been doing. They've also been trying to get out ahead of the burnout issue, Oren, that so many of the teams are facing right now, especially coming out of the pandemic. And they're trying to figure out, okay, how do I systematically and programmatically give my teams more leverage around how they're getting work done so that my employees can be doing the truly strategic, necessary kind of highest order thinking, and then build out programmatically freelance models that are, again, very agile because they've seen that they really need more flexibility in terms of how they're kind of turning on and off programs, kind of moving on a dime. Pandemic has shown them that they need that agility in the business. They can do that with the freelance model so effectively. And so they're trying to kind of wire that into the business 
upfront so that whether it's you know, a finance team coming into an earnings season, whether it's a marketing team coming into a seasonal campaign, whether it's a technical team, you know, bursting capacity because they suddenly need to, you know, reskin a website or build something new. Suddenly they can use this model um, to kind of serve that business need and have their kind of fixed pool of FTE resources, not really changing much, but then they can kind of spin up and down the amount of um, leveraged resources through the freelance pool as the business needs are changing throughout the year, throughout the quarter, et cetera. And that's really how companies are kind of managing agility. When I think about buying time, like to me, the two easiest things to buy are experience. So someone who has this very specific knowledge, uh, like going back to the SEO example, I don't know that much about SEO. They're an SEO expert. They're always doing SEO types of things. They can buy that knowledge, but I don't need that forever. So I need that knowledge for a certain number of hours to help me. Um, and then the second thing is like buying more, let's say, itemized work. So these are like, in some ways, like an API for people. Is, are the, is, is, do you think about it differently? Or how do you think about the arc of like, like how to get leverage and what to buy and how to buy time? I think we do think about it the same way. And that's kind of why historically our core models have been an hourly model on the site where you can basically buy some of time by the hour and a fixed price model where you can basically purchase deliverables, essentially. And that kind of shows up in exactly how we've kind of built the different workflows and kind of units of purchase. Um, because that's kind of how I think people are like you are, and that's how they kind of think about the units of what they're going to purchase. And they can put people on a retainer. They can put somebody on a stipend and kind of say, Hey, I want to have you 20 hours a week, every week, or they can literally have it be billed by the hour as someone is doing the work. But that's kind of, I think how a lot of people think about it. And it depends on um, the type of relationship, the type of work they're building. I think, you know, one of the things that's maybe misunderstood about the, especially like the hourly based work, although not exclusively, is I think when people think about the model you and I are talking about with working with freelancers, they do think about it as maybe being um, very arm's length. Like, oh, I'm going to work with these people in this kind of distance way. Um, they're very, it's a very transactional relationship. And I may not be able to count on them. Like they're not going to really get to know my business. Like they're going to be kind of like, like foreigners, kind of like on the distant shore of my business. Yeah. Almost like an API. Like when you deal with Stripe, it's not like Stripe knows who your company is or something. Yeah. And okay. they're on the other side of the wall. Like my business and my team are over here and these freelancers are on the other side. And I don't know if this is true to your experience and your team experience working with Upwork. I've, I've actually talked to some of your team members. So I think I know the answer, but what we see with the majority of our clients who really invest in this model is they end up building these very substantial relationships with the freelancers that they're working with on a repeat basis. So these become like extended members of their team. They call it the virtual talent bench that they have. So they really rely on these folks. These people know their business. They know the lingo. They know the, the brand guidelines or the code base or whatever it is. And so um, instead of it being some kind of like, it may, it may be a very clean interface in terms of how information is exchanged and how requirements are shared. But in terms of the value that these people are able to add, because they really do know and understand what's going on at SafeGraph or Upwork or whoever the client is, it's super valuable just the way it is if they, this person was an FTE, you know, working in-house. And also, there's no reason necessarily to have necessarily a full-time person who has specialty Not Like, I don't have a full-time doctor or a full-time plumber or any of these other types of things. Like, there's no reason to have someone full-time um, who has you know, very, very specific knowledge. That's a great analogy. You don't need that person to be full-time for you in order to add a tremendous amount of value for your business. One of the reasons I admire Upwork from as like a business 
is it's a super successful marketplace. And to get a marketplace, like, oh, like I don't know, there's always this debate of what's more important, supply or demand. Do you have like a, a dog in that fight? So my colleague, John Horton, always says, answering that question is like saying, which side of the scissors is more important to cut with? Um, and I think it's so true that you can't, you, know, you can't build a successful marketplace just with supply or with demand. It is really about managing that equilibrium. And, you know, I've been in this business, it will be my 10 year anniversary in December that I've been at Upwork. So um, I've seen us over many years, building the supply side, building the demand side. And it, to me, it's about achieving that healthy balance. I've seen periods in our business where I felt like we over-indexed on one or the other. We over-indexed for a period of time, focusing on features, functionality, messaging, just for the supply side or just for the demand side. And when the pendulum swings too far to one side or the other side, I think you start to pay a price in terms of eroding the value proposition, the trust, et cetera, that the other side has in your market. Upwork in some ways like is a fairly mature marketplace like to get one if you're advising a company to get one off the ground like is there one do you think one versus the other or do you, or do you still think it really is that harmony and balance that's so important to, to to do it i think the harmony is critical that's where we focus today i think most marketplaces do find that one side is more constrained than the other like one is the more um constrained for us is the demand side so our business we've always had freelancers come to the platform, sign up. We've never done freelancer side marketing and advertising, but there's- Oh, really? So, much- oh, so you you somehow through word of mouth or whatever, they've that's figured right. this out that that's a place to go. Okay, that's we, incredible. Because exactly. usually, usually it's very hard to get supply. Okay, interesting. And is that just because like there's a, you have this brand and you, I mean, Upwork's been in the business for a really long time. And is that why you think that, that you have yeah. this advantage? I think- you know, we're the number one largest player in our space. We've been the industry pioneer for 20 years. I think we have such strong brand recognition and word of mouth amongst talent who I think they come on the platform, they get very successful, they earn a ton of money, they see how well this works for them. I think there has been this, um, you know, it's no surprise, this uh, recognition amongst talent that people want, talented individuals want freedom, flexibility, control over when, where, for whom they're working. I think everyone's talking about that now with, the great resignation and um, the push for remote work and this kind of surprise that people have like, oh, workers actually want flexibility around how they work. Well, yeah, no, no crap. And people have known that for a long time. That's one of the reasons I think freelancing has been on the rise way before the pandemic. And even now we're seeing with um, this great resignation, a lot of uh, former employees are not going from firm to firm. They're actually leaving um, employment, traditional employment to actually become freelancers. So you know, last year, 20 million Americans joined the freelance economy for the first time. 60% of them said there's no amount of money that they could be paid to go back into a traditional job. So anyways, I think there's been a lot to the value proposition of Upwork and freelancing for a long time. We've never had to do advertising there, but the demand side of our marketplace has been a constraint for us. So we have focused our marketing efforts on awareness and kind of category building and all of that. But in terms of features, functionality, et cetera, it's something where I think we strive to achieve real parity in terms of the level of focus, because we know we need health on both sides of, of the business to really you know, serve uh, the market. There's been a lot of talk about different types of take rates for marketplaces. Um, and there's a big debate around different take rates. And obviously there's a whole Epic Apple debate that's going around around take rates on that marketplace. Like, how do you think about it? Because if you're, you know, take, obviously your take rate can't be zero or you can't make money. 
Um, but if it's too high, then, um, well, people might go somewhere else and maybe you won't grow the business as fast, um, et cetera. So how do you think about that as you're, as you move forward in the business? Yeah. So we've always focused on GSV gross services volume, which is kind of the total amount of spend on our platform as the golden metric for us, much more so than take rate, because we believe that it really indicates are we creating value in the world? Like, is this an ecosystem that is growing, that is healthy, that ultimately people are spending on? And take rate is definitely a concern, but it's definitely a secondary concern. And, and for us, given that we measure our total addressable market at, at over a trillion dollars, and last year we had two and a half billion dollars of GSV on our platform. You got a lot of so ways to go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. We are far from achieving our total TAM which is super exciting in terms of the growth opportunity for the business. But it also means that um, when I think about take rate as a priority, um, it's less of a priority than driving overall GSV growth. Um, when we look at, is our take rate healthy? We, and, and how do we expand it over time? Which certainly there are those opportunities. We look at um, kind of our product portfolio, our different monetization levers, and are we kind of growing into those different opportunities to expand take rate? As we continue to add value, as we continue to add new products, you know whether it's some of the products we added recently, such as the one I mentioned earlier, Project Catalog, which kind of by definition, because it is a one-click checkout experience that is um, for in our business, kind of smaller projects, which tend to monetize at a higher take rate based on just our current fee structure, generally would move our take rate up over time if it becomes you know, a much bigger part of our business. And you can imagine you can add things like background check services or all these other types of things. Like a lot of marketplaces do make money on things like interchange and foreign exchange fees and stuff like that. Um, that is part of our monetization model, but I'm, I'm also wary of um, a lot of like hidden fees like that, which I think in general don't serve customers well. And I want our monetization to always align with customer value creation. I think, for example... One area to your question about take rate that we've looked at a lot in the past is we've been able to make a lot of choices around take rate over time. And we've always chosen to keep our take rate aligned from a value proposition perspective with places where we feel like our customers are winning. So for example, because our take rate is um, basically a percentage of freelancer earnings, when freelancers spend, when they're basically able to charge more, we make more. And we've always felt that's really important in comparison to platforms like um, Uber or others, where they basically, when they cram down um, rates of their drivers, they take a bigger spread. And that's kind of the inverse of our model. When our freelancers are able to bill more, we we earn more. Whereas, you know, in Uber, when they're able to press it down, you know, they earn more. We felt it's from a, like a value proposition perspective, important for us to stay value aligned with our talent earning more because we want to create this cycle where we're incentivized to match the highest quality people who can kind of drive the best outcomes with um, our clients. And once we kind of head too far in the other direction, it could get um, challenging. So yes, we have like some other products where we do take a spread on, on things, but we kind of want our core model to stay um, very value aligned with our customers. Yeah, I, I'm super fascinated with these marketplaces. Do you like, do you study other marketplaces? And if so, like, which ones do you look at and, and say, oh, this is really interesting. They're doing this new thing over here. Or how do you, how do you, how do you do your totally. own research about that? I'm so fascinated by them too, Aaron. Marketplaces are like the coolest businesses around and they're all so interesting. Um, I love looking at other marketplaces. I think um, 
some of the most interesting ones that we look at are things like dating websites, which um, at first blush may not seem that relevant for our business. It's a bit of a two-sided though in a dating marketplace, the supply is also the demand, right? Well, yeah. And it's, I think what's interesting too is, um, you know, sir, uh, because we run a services marketplace, the, you know, any given freelancer only has 40 or 50 or 60 hours in their week that they can put into work. Unlike a goods marketplace where potentially a seller could have, you know, some, you know, very large number of goods that they can kind of just keep reselling. So um, the analogy to dating is kind of like, you can only like go on so many dates or like only be matched up so many times, you know, as an individual. Um, and some of the also nuances around services and the things like soft skills and, you know, do we have chemistry working together? And some of those things are also kind of parallels to like the things that are like harder to quantify. Um, I think in a dating website matching scenario versus uh, like, you know, if I'm looking for an iPhone case on eBay or Amazon, I can just put in my requirements or my, you know, things like that, which are very different. So it's interesting because the analogy it's in dating marketplaces, like one of the key constraints of like getting things moving is, is geography, right? It's really, you, you generally want to date somebody, I presume, um, in, in one's geography where um, in your case, geography is not a constraint, but the constraint is a particular type of um, talent. Again, going back to that SEO, you need to have SEO consultants and you need people who want SEO consultants um, to, to go do this. So it's this like niche that you're, you're looking for. Are there other types of marketplaces where they have like, you know, other weird constraints that are out there? Um, you know, so actually on the geography point, I think it was Bill Gurley who told me recently that something like um, 40% of marriages now actually originate on if, with online dating, which is like a mind blowing stat when you realize that, um, you know, that's a pretty nascent market and how, like how quickly the world has shifted from offline to online. And I think that's another one that's like really interesting for our scenario because, you know, we, we match online, obviously, and you're right. Geography is less of a factor, although time zone sometimes is more of a, people do want to have some of those constraints and you think like how quickly can we move the offline world of like recruiting to you know truly online um i think some of the other ones i mean we look at a lot of the traditional um you know the etsy's of the world ebay's amazon's there's like a lot of those that are interesting um and then looking at smaller companies that are doing things in like vertical niches are always interesting you know to see what are people doing specifically in like design and creative or um tech you know there's a lot of there's always a, a bunch of startups that usually try to get going in different verticals that we serve. And then they kind of scale up to a certain point, realize that their customer acquisition costs can't really um, scale beyond the, like a $10 million business or something like that, because the customer doesn't have like enough repeat buying behavior. They kind of get tapped out and then they usually come to us and try to get us to buy. What, the what do you think of like a cameo in some ways are similar business, right? Obviously a different type of supply, um, um, and, and a different type of demand. And in, 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 I guess in the demands case, like maybe people aren't buying from Cameo that often. Um, and, uh, Good question. So I don't, I don't, I don't know, know what how, the repeat I, Yeah, I don't know how is. that works. And maybe a marketer is buying out by, I guess a lot of times people buy, you know, once or twice a year or something. Um, maybe. So, uh, but but yeah, I, I don't, how do, you, how do you think about that that type of business? And, and in some ways, it's very, very similar to Upwork. Sometimes on the supply side, on the talent side of our marketplace, some of the analogs are more B2C. And so we look at B2C businesses because the tap has some of the talent sometimes operates, even though these are business owners. And then, but they're more like individuals kind of making individual decisions. And then on the client side of our business, it is more B2B. So we tend to look at more B2B analogs um, at times. 
Um, Cameo is an interesting one. I mean, we're always looking for inspiration around everything from how different marketplaces are driving like viral growth loops or how they're signing up um, maybe teams and getting, you know, not just like one user from the company, you know, maybe like at, at Cameo, like they're getting the, the marketing department to start using it. Like, are they doing something clever to get other, other teams in the company signed up? Can we learn from them there? So we do look very broadly for inspiration because our mindset is, you know, we can learn from everybody. Um, there's no limit on that. And what I've seen throughout my career is like the more broadly we kind of cast our net and get our team talking to other companies, bringing in and hiring people, you know, from different places in the ecosystem who've learned different things. That's always a huge benefit. If you think of like a GLG, which is like an expert network, um, you could see uh, Upwork moving into that more where today um, a, a, a private equity firm or a hedge fund or something like that might want to learn a little bit more about a, a software product and they might want to try to get some software users and interview them and try to understand why they like that. And they might use a GLG for that. That might be a very perfect thing for an Upwork. Have you thought about these kind of like these kind of ring expansions as well in the marketplace? Yeah. So I think that's exactly where, when we have this strategy of being the work marketplace for our customers, that's kind of the single destination where they can come to and know that whatever their need is um, with a freelancer serving that need or as a freelancer coming and being able to sell their services and basically monetize their time through any range of ways, that's exactly what we're trying to do, Oren. So today, we don't have a built-out use case for um, specifically offering you know, paid advice services. Certainly, our freelance talent is monetizing their time that way with clients all the time. It's not something that we've kind of narrowly um, productized yet. But given our strategy, you could imagine over time, as we see more demand in that space, um, either on the marketplace today with more job posts like flying around for that or potentially uh, freelancers packaging their services through our catalog offering that way, et cetera, we might um, more narrowly build you know, um, an experience around that um, or potentially we could you know, buy a provider there if we felt like that was strategic for us, you know, not today, but potentially down the road. So that, but that's kind of where the wrapper of our market, uh, work marketplace strategy sits is basically enabling us to keep innovating for customers all of the ways that they want to do this stuff. And I think that's how this trillion dollar market opportunity will be one is giving people all of these things in one place because they don't want to go to like a fragmented set of solutions and also have to like onboard, offboard um, talent, have to credential themselves into these different use cases, have to upload information into these different things. Like I think the benefit for customers of basically being served in a single place for all of this and having also within corporations um, knowing there's like data privacy and all of these things kind of handled, there's a lot to that that we see with customers. So that's the path that we're basically um, on is being able to do that all in one place. You, Upwork has a lot of data. Um, in some ways, it's like really deep macroeconomic data. And of course, I'm sure you use it internally for pricing and helping freelancers and helping people looking for freelancers. And But have you ever thought about like packaging that data? I imagine like uh, a global macro hedge fund would buy it. The, the Federal Reserve would probably be really interested in it. The World Bank would probably find it super interesting as well. Like have you ever thought about packaging or even giving it away to academics or things like that? So we have a really long history with academics, economists, you know, a lot of folks that we've always had this great relationship with who actually have run a bunch of studies on our platform. Um, we have done a lot of data sharing. Um, I think since we went through the go public process, 
we have been a little more careful with um, some aspects of our data because of some of the sensitivity around that, just being a public company. Um, but definitely we're on a journey now actually with our chief economist, Adam Ozimek, and some of the work with our, that our product team is doing to figure out what other data can we externalize? Because basically we're running like a, a two and a half billion dollar economy on our, on our platform with all of this rich insight around you know, labor pricing in different pockets of the world, like how you know trends are moving in terms of the freelance economy specifically. We publish some of this stuff through our you know, research studies, our annual freelancing um, report we put out, all these different things. You, you but, mentioned you have a chief, a chief economist. Is that a full-time person mm-hmm. or, or is it like a, they're a professor somewhere else and they do it part-time for you? And, and how do you make a decision one versus the other? Yeah, he is a full-time person with us um, and he's awesome. And he basically just like is crunching numbers on you know the platform all the time publishing reports also he's like prolific on social media sharing and engaging you know with other academics um experts etc um around the insights that both we have from our platform but also kind of connecting that to some of the other reports studies you know yeah, so similar myth, to like let's say what a redfin would do for real estate or something you can do totally. for understanding the ah oh, that's that's so interesting Totally. So there's a lot that we're doing there. And we're basically trying to even bring more of that to the fore, especially at this moment when the like tectonic change in the labor marketplace is happening so rapidly. And we're seeing some of the data on our platform and we're going to try to get more of that out um, into the ecosystem. So for us, it's not about monetizing it. It's more just about helping educate folks who really don't have the visibility that we have into um, this really um, you know, exciting part of the economy, which is frankly becoming such a bigger part of how people are working. I mean, right now, more than half of Generation Z is freelancing. And yet people just talk all the time about employees, employees, employees. And like, yet people are Wait, freelancing. what's Generation Z again? In the workforce, like the, the current, like 18 to, you know, 25 year olds. So, so like after that. the millennials. Okay. That's right. The next generation after millennials. Do they have a W-9 and they're freelancing on the side? And, and is that how they start doing it? Like, okay, I've got, I've, got a, I've got a job right out of college. I'm working at, you know, wherever I'm working at, at, um, at General Electric. And then on the side, I'm, I'm, I'm freelancing. Or is it like I'm freelancer first and it's, a, it's like a van life forever. And, and I never want to go back to doing anything else. It's all of the above. But I think what the this generation has really seen, I mean, they grew up seeing the 2008 recession. They basically realized from very early on as they were going through college and coming into the workforce that the employment contract essentially was broken and that they could not count on being an employee as kind of a safety net for themselves. And frankly, I think their value system is much more aligned with this idea of being independent, paving their own way, um, carrying with them a set of skills and a portfolio of experience that really is something that they can count on to um, you know, be the way that they're going to earn their income. So it's a very different value system and outlook on how they're going to be successful and kind of paving their way. It's part of the creator economy. You know, It's kind of all of that coming together so that people may have you know, a day job, so to speak, but really even if they're doing a side hustle, it may be that that's part of how their like passion economy side of themselves shows up is part of how they're making a living and maybe is what they're aspiring to do full-time if they're not doing that already as their full-time um, way of earning. So it, I think this is a generation that has just a very different outlook on what employment means to them. And it's not, it's almost like employment may be what they need to do for now, uh, um, but until they're building like their, their, you know, 
portfolio, their um, established way of actually being independent and earning this way. Are all the different freelance systems like symbiotic, like if I drive for Uber, I may be more likely to try out um, Upwork or vice versa, or how, how do you see yourself uh, or how do you see all these different systems like interacting with one another? So I don't have data on that. I mean, my suspicion is there's, we don't like anecdotally have any like indications there's a real overlap between um, like Uber drivers or DoorDash delivery people and Upworkers because really Upworkers are not part of the gig economy in the traditional sense because these are really highly skilled people chosen to freelance as um, the way that they're earning their living, which tends to be very different than the profile, I think, of, of those other folks. But what I would say is there is the sense we have seen increasingly in, in the freelance economy, people doing this um, out of choice rather than necessity and the data backs that up more. For the first time it was in 2019, more than half of the people freelancing in the economy as a whole, not just on Upwork, were doing so out of choice, not necessity, which was the first time that that was the case in all the years that we had been doing this study. Um, moreover, as we went through the um, economic downturn last year, when we were serving freelancers on our platform, we heard from them that they actually felt more secure being freelancers than if they had been in traditional FTE jobs. And the reason they said that was that they were on average working with five or more clients. And they knew that if they had um, lost one of those clients or one of those clients went out of business, they had this like safety net of other ways of earning. Whereas if they had been in a full-time job, that could, job could have gone away. They could have been furloughed, et cetera. So I think there's this mental shift that's happened with the Gen Z folks the young people in the workforce, people who've now been moving into freelancing by choice, where they actually see it as more secure than this kind of broken employment contract, which has been kind of revealed over the last 15 years or so to be less secure and less of a you know safe place than what I think in America, we kind of see the employment thing as kind of the gold standard. But now people are looking at it like, really? Is that really what it is? And, and people are reconsidering that. Are there different cultural things? Because it does seem like in America, it is, it's, a, it's an entrepreneurial place. You know, being a freelancer in some ways is like running your own business. Uh, maybe Absolutely. it's a company of one. You've seen like talent, getting talent might be different in different geographies because of that. Like the status symbol of working for Siemens or something like that in Germany might be a lot higher than the status symbol here. You know, it's it's a great topic. I think that the stature of freelancing globally has definitely improved significantly in the last couple sure. of years. Yep. Um, and I remember talking to freelancers, for example, in India, even like five years ago, and they said, wow, I can't tell my mother-in-law that I'm a freelancer because they're like, what is that? Like, that's not a thing. You know, who do you work for? Like, I need a brand name. And I think fast forward to where we are today, and increasingly people are proud to say, I'm a freelancer, I'm a freelancer on Upwork. It's a status thing. You know, we see on LinkedIn, people reposting when they get like a um, top rated badge on Upwork and things like that. You know, it's really something that they can celebrate now. So I think the stature is changing, but uh, many of the negative stereotypes do still remain. And I think, you know, we see this in the research we do where um, there's stigma still. And people think freelancing is not like a serious career or they think, oh, you're freelancing. Are you in between jobs, you know, and that type of thing. And so um, even though we've come a long way, both in the US and globally, we're not where we need to be yet. And I think when we talk to freelancers, you know, they still run into these things um, either in their families or, you know, at a cocktail party or whatever, where they 
you know, people are kind of like still trying to figure out like, well, what do you really do? And they're like, no, I'm, I'm a serious freelancer, you know, $300,000 last year on Upwork. And people are like, wait, what, you know? So, um, we were, the disconnect is still there and, um, there's work to be done to change the stereotypes. Now COVID really did seem to have massively accelerated the freelance market, accelerated, obviously Upwork. And it seems the wages for at least these technical workers have really gone up quite a bit because of those supply constraints. Um, how do you see those weight? How the like the weight? Do you think that the wages will go back down? Do you think they'll plateau where they're at? Do you think they're going to still go up? Like where do you see that moving in the future? It's hard to predict the wage changes overall, but I think just generally, historically, what we've seen is that the freelancers on our platform have consistently year over year been. Um, able to continue to raise their wages, you know, in keeping with inflation or above that. And that I think as we look at the global supply of labor in technical fields and other places, you know, there is a good supply of that. I think businesses typically have not been good at looking in the right places for the labor, but the labor does exist. So I'm not sure that I would expect it to go down for any reason. Um, I think that there is a lot of demand the demand will keep increasing. There is a lot of supply. People are, haven't necessarily been, you know, um, successful in looking on platforms like Upwork, you know, to find it. But they're they're figuring that out now. Um, but I think, you know, the demand will continue to be really strong. So I'm I'm not worried that freelancers will not will have any trouble kind of continuing to negotiate, you know, really strong rates for their work. Be very competitive earn, you know, what they um, deserve, and it also be a great opportunity for clients because I think clients you know, frankly, been overpaying in many um, cases, other providers like staffing firms and folks who are, are adding these big premiums for not adding a lot of value, frankly. And when, when they shift over to other models like this one, they frankly get a much better deal. And the talent is going to actually charge more and get more out of the equation, even than the, what they were getting through like a staffing intermediary. So it's, it's really a win-win. Now, I'm, I'm super interested in like you personally, um, so you went from running product at Upwork to CEO. Now that is actually a pretty common path in a startup, but it, it's extremely uncommon. At least I have not seen that very much at a public company. Do you think we're going to see that more happen now in public companies or are more people looking to you for this, for this type of uh, career change? You know, I do talk to a lot of product leaders who want to make that you know, next um, jump to CEO. So I think sort of the, the appetite from product leaders is there to move into the CEO chair. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's kind of the obvious place because product is kind of like the central place in a company. You have to interact with sales and with marketing and with engineering. And with, so you're already, you already have those relationships. You're, you're, you're developing the long-term strategy for where the right. company goes. So it makes sense, but it does seem for many public companies, they're, they're taking the sales leader or maybe the, the finance leader or you know, somebody else often um, and, and promoting them rather than like the product leader. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Haven't looked at any at any data of what's happening, especially in tech companies where product does play such an important role in the things that you mentioned. You're driving the strategy, long term planning, and having such a cross functional view of the business and those partnerships. Um, you know, I think in our case, it was a pretty logical um, you know transition because I was in a situation running product and marketing too, and had had those relationships and such a great um, view of the business from 
uh, my time here, you know, after so many different chapters in the business um, and a big vision for where we could go. But I think, you know, the, the product management role also has evolved so much, Warren. I mean, you've seen this over the last 10 plus years. I think when I got into product management, it was still like a really poorly defined field. Even today, it looks so different at different companies, you know, like a PM at Google versus a PM at Apple or, you know, a startup down the street is probably doing, you know, pretty different things. The org is generally going to be smaller, right? So the, because product is, is, does get a lot of leverage or inter- So, you know, the, the, the product org might be 10% or 20% of what the sales org is or something. So I could see how a company may be biased to picking the sales leader or rather than the product leader, because the sales leader may be just managing more people. Yeah, I mean, product, you're not usually leading an army, right? I mean, it's a highly leveraged org. Um, but I think uh, a lot of the skills around like communication, uh, vision, leadership, those translate pretty readily to, you know, the C-suite and the, the CEO um, chair. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next, you know, five to 10 years, as I think a lot of the product management function leaders who kind of grew up in product over the last decade are getting to that point in their careers where they're really ready for that next role and what will companies do? You know, who will they be looking to, to lead? Um, yeah, it's interesting because if you look at a venture funded startups, so many of those CEOs were PMs at other companies, maybe they're PM at Google or right? something before, but that's where they came out of. That's how they learned to, to be a CEO. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think maybe you're right. Maybe we'll see a real change in the future. Okay. Last question that we ask all of our guests um, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give to the younger Hayden? Maybe like set more concrete goals for myself. That's probably what I would have done. You know, I, oh, I really, always, okay. You seem yeah. like a very on it person, you know, I may appear that way, Orin, but you know, I've, I've always been, um, ambitious and hardworking and held myself to really high standards, but I think I've never, um, like I never dreamt of being a CEO weird. And I, it took until the chairman of our, um, board a few years ago was like, Hey, you should be a CEO someday. And I was like, Oh, that, yeah, maybe I should. And I think looking why, back why on did that, that, not like pervade your mind. Why did that not? I mean, I've known you for a long time. You've always been a super high achieving person. And I would say a lot of super high achieving person do think they should be CEO, right? You know, so. I know. And I'm, I'm embarrassed for myself that that wasn't a concrete ambition that I had. And I look at that and I think. Um, I, Maybe that's I, why you're such a good CEO though, is because you didn't like have that desire. Um, but anyways, I, so I think the advice I would give my younger self would be like set more like concrete um, goals and then don't be afraid to fail at them. I think that's part of it too, is like maybe one of the reasons I didn't set them was I didn't want to miss them. And so oh, I had these more like general ambitions. It's a bigger goal, whereas you can just say, I want to do good work. It's harder to miss a do good work. Exactly, right? It's kind yeah. of, yeah, I'll be, success, be successful, do good work, you know, be excellent, whatever. So um, I think looking at that, you know, I think that's one thing I could have done differently. And I don't know if that would have led to any different outcomes, but <laughs> um, why not? You know, why not aim really high? And then if you come in halfway, like that's fine too. So, uh, all right, this is really great. Now, where if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Uh, well, uh, upwork.com, okay, you know, there's like that, yep, of course. And then, uh, I guess I have you know, Twitter, uh, Hayden, it's like Hayden Brown, but with none of the vowels, so yeah, do that. 
Um, LinkedIn also I'm on there somewhere and I try to post stuff that I think is interesting and, and provocative. Uh, so those are probably the best places. Awesome. Well, great. Thank you so much for joining us on World of Ass. Oren, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of Das is brought to you by SafeGraph.